Hey guys, so today we're here with Liam Mitchell from Infrared Services and excited because we're going to be running over everything thermographic testing and tools, certification training, the processes for efficiency on site, um, some software and what we need to consider when we're uh, as a manager, when we're doing the reporting and sending it out for a good service for our customers. We'll also run over some standards and OH&S stuff as well. So thanks so much for joining us, Liam. Thanks, Greg. So tell us a little bit about how you got into understanding uh, thermographic testing, infrared, you know, tools and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, so it was a bit of a roundabout thing for me, messed around a little bit after high school. My dad was already uh, run, owned and run infrared services. Um, against my better judgment, I started working for him when I was about 19 or 20 after trying a couple of other different things. Um, and then uh, his health wasn't great a few years after that. So he retired and myself and, uh, and my business partner took over the company. Um, so I've been running the day-to-day for um, about 10 years now, I think. Cool. And um, yeah, been doing it for about 15. Um, and in between then, I am uh, also obviously became an electrician um, and I'm a high voltage operator. I've got three different uh, thermographic certification. So I'm certified to work in Europe, Australia, and the US. Um, and I'm also an ultrasound inspector. Cool. So do you actually do some work in the US and over God, there? God, no. Yeah. So what's, what's the benefit of being qualified over there? Uh, as a general rule, um, when you pick up one certification, you'll off, often end up picking another picking up another two or three, depending who you do your training with. Yeah. Um, so we'll cover that more, obviously, when we, we uh, do a deeper dive into the certifications. Yeah, cool. Um, awesome. But uh, yeah, a, a lot of the, uh, the training organizations will, uh, will give you a cert that complies with um, a couple of the different uh, standards. Cool. Awesome. All right. Well, I'd love to dive into some of the tools and what you think like from your experience, obviously being it for a long time now, understanding what tools are the ones to use and what to look out for. And, you know, uh, in terms of tools that might not be doing a good job for your customers. Yeah, sure. Um, so you don't need a whole lot. Um, as we were talking about before we went on air, um, you really get away with a screwdriver, a pair of pliers and an infrared camera. Um, you also want a clamp meter to, um, to grab some load readings as you go. But uh, by far and away, the most important thing um, for um, to choose is the infrared camera. Um, there are a bunch of different uh, specifications on the camera that you want to look out for. Um, the key one that, that most people will understand is resolution. Um, so same as you have uh, resolution on the camera on your phone or on a digital camera, your infrared camera's got resolution. Much yep. lower numbers than what you're probably used to dealing with though. Um, a, a quality camera is a 320 by 240 detector. So that's an array of 320 by 240 pixels. Yeah. And the way to think about it is, uh, you know, those infrared thermometers that you get, that you pointed at it and gives you a spot temperature. Think of it as though you've got 320 of them in one direction and 240 in another laid out in a grid. And that's basically what your infrared camera is doing. Cool. Um, so it's pointing. Really uh, picking up on those little uh, spots that might be hot in just a particular area? Correct. So it's pointing 76,000 different detectors at whatever you're looking at. Um, and it's giving you the temperature of, uh, of every one of those little squares. Wow. Um, <clears throat> so you can get more high-end cameras now. You can get ones that are 640 uh, by 480 and 1024 by 768. Um, price starts going up exponentially. You can also get cameras that do little tricks now. Um, every manufacturer has got a different name for it. I think Fluke call it super resolution. So what they do is um, because your hand shakes a little bit whenever you take an image, um, it takes advantage of that movement. So when you hit record on an image and your hand shakes that tiny bit, and it does kind of like a, a bit of a square. It actually takes four shots and stitches them together. So out of a 320 by 240 detector, you actually get a 640 by 480 image. Yep. So that's a, one thing to look out for uh, when you're buying your camera. You can get away with a cheaper camera that'll produce nicer images if you keep an eye out for that feature. Yeah. Um, now there's other things like um, uh, instantaneous field of view, um, which is what sort of a, a resolution it can actually provide at what kind of a distance. 
um, and the thermal resolution, which is usually measured in millikelvins. Um, and that's just how many degrees in temperature difference the camera can actually resolve between two objects. So a lower number there is usually better. Having said all that, if you, you don't want to ignore those things, but if you focus on resolution, if you get a camera that's got decent detector resolution, then it's usually going to have good specs in the other areas anyway. Yeah, cool. So does that also help like the distance back? I know with other cameras, the further back, say for instance, you might have a 4K camera, you can zoom in and um, get a better picture of, you know, without losing resolution. So you can be further back to take the photo and still have a pretty precise spot where it's hot. Exactly right, yeah. Um, so our rule of thumb um, is if the camera costs less than a cheap hatchback, um, it's probably not worth buying if you're going to be doing a lot of inspections. If you just want something that you can chuck in your tool bag so that you can check your own work at the end of a job, um, then absolutely you can get away with spending two or three grand um, or even just one of those little iPhone attachments. But if you want to be running around doing you know, a lot of inspections, going through large buildings or large plants, um, you need to spend a little bit of money. Um, the other thing is the refresh rate on the camera. Um, so they're usually sold in, I think, 9 hertz and 60 hertz, and there's one in between, which is 30 hertz. Um, anything that you go in and buy off the shelf in Australia is going to be 9 hertz. Um, the 60 hertz cameras, so this is a refresh rate, so how many images it gives you in a second. Um, the 60 hertz cameras are actually classified as military hardware, so you need to get an import permit to bring them in, um, which is not as difficult as it sounds. It's really just one piece of paper that you sign off. Yeah. Um, it does mean you then can't resell it though. You're supposed to tell the government. So if you chuck it up on eBay, I've never tried it, but I assume you'd get in some sort of trouble. Um, that, um, that is not critical. You can get away with using a nine Hertz camera. They generally cost the same amount as well. Um, but 60 Hertz as you're, you're scanning the switchboards and moving through, it just gives you a much smoother image. It's just, it's much easier to interpret the results as you're going and work, work more quickly and efficiently. Um, so if you can get your hands on a 60 hertz camera, that's what you want to do. Um, and I definitely wouldn't recommend any resolution lower than 320 by 240. Yep. Um, and that's going to set you back, depending on the manufacturer you prefer to go with, anywhere between sort of nine and $15,000. Do you have any purchasing tips around that? Do you usually get financing for that and pay it off over time or just pay it outright? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, depends on your accountant, I guess, um, what your philosophy is with that. Um, ours has always been with any capital expense like that, where you're intending that it's going to generate revenue. Um, why take cash out of your, your cash flow for that? Mm. Um, and we generally buy two at a time um, just so that we get a, a better rate. So we, uh, yeah, we absolutely finance them. I don't know that the manufacturers typically offer any finance on them never never heard of that so you just have to go to your bank or a you know a broker yeah. same guy you used to buy your vehicles would be able to help you out with buying an infrared camera yeah cool sweet yeah i see a lot of people buy assets for twenty thousand dollars with cash and you're like oh man why that, that <laughs> don't do that yeah never do that yeah. it's not, yeah that is not <laughs> a good idea yeah. cool yeah and then they can't pay the bass bass bill when it comes around yeah um, exactly right so cool. Thanks for that. So uh, what's your preferred uh, brand that you use? Um, so for years we used um, NEC Avionics, which came out of Japan um, because that was, it was the nicest, sturdiest gear we could get our hands on. Um, these days we use Fluke. Um, we use the TIX series, which is Fluke's higher end product. So we've yeah. got some 520s and some 560s in our lineup. Um, very nice cameras. There are things I don't love about them. Um, Fluke for me has always been characterized by gorgeous hardware and terrible software. Um, and I don't think their infrared cameras are any different. Um, yeah. So we use third party software with them. Um, but uh, yeah, we've never had major dramas with them. We have had them fail before. Um, every time that's happened, Fluke's been really good. They've given us uh, you know, a demo unit um, to replace it and uh, they send it back to the US and fix it. Cool. One thing we, um, we do look out for, uh, there's generally two form factors of cameras. There's the pistol grip ones, which um, 
everybody will see all over the place. Um, and then there's ones that look more like a traditional sort of camcorder. Um, and you can sort of, you can pivot the lens and the, uh, and the screen separately. That's important <coughs> because often you'll be inspecting things that are above your eye line. Um, particularly, you know, your average switchboard is what two meters high and you might have a busway across the top and you mm. want to be able to get in and look at that. If you've got the pistol grip camera, you've got two options. Um, you can either half ass it and not look at it properly, or you can go and get a ladder. Um, now after eight or nine hours, uh, in a hot process plant, sweating your box off, I know what most guys are going to do is half ass it. Yeah. Um, so make your life easy get a camera where you can pivot the lens assembly and the screen separately. You can hold it up above your head, look down into the switchboard safely and you can see what's going on on the screen. Yeah. If you've got a pistol grip camera. It makes it very, very hard. Awesome. Good tip. That's a good one. Sweet. Well, I'm looking forward to talking more about the software in a little bit, but um, I'd love to dive into certification and training and, and how people can get into this sort of field of work. Yeah. This is where it actually gets really difficult. Um, the barriers to entry in thermal imaging are much higher than what the reps selling the cameras might have you believe. Um, I know Fluke and Fleur both do, and I think Testo do them as well now. They do half day and one day courses. Um, the only thing you can learn in a half a day is that you can't learn anything in half a day. Um, so <laughs> if you want to do it properly, um, you need to get um, AINDT accredited third party certification. Uh, that comes in three levels. It's level one, level two, and level three. Um, level one is your technician or your Sparky going out on site, doing the inspections, gathering the data, um, finding what he thinks are the faults and bringing it back to the office. Um, level two is uh, preparing the reports, supervising the level ones and uh, giving repair recommendations to the clients. Level three is providing training and certification. Um, so for example, I'm a level two. My guys that go out on site are level ones. Yep. Uh, the training is usually, it's a week's course. Um, and then there's an exam at the end of it. And then you need to provide evidence of actually having, uh, like, uh, like your logbook when you do your electrical license, um, you've got to log some jobs. And I think for level one, you've got to log, uh, it's 160 hours under the Australian standard. Um, I could be wrong. It's been a little while since I've looked at that. Mm -hmm. um, and then level two is about 600 hours, which honestly, to my way of thinking is a little bit low, um, but that's the, the minimum to, to get certified under the standard. Yep. Cool. Uh, so for our guys, we usually have them on training wheels for about 12 months, um, doing inspections almost full time. It's one of those things. Um, it looks very easy and the broad strokes of it really are like you give 90% of people, whether they're an electrician or not a camera and get them to look at a switchboard. Uh, they'll be able to find a couple of things that are hot pretty quickly. Um, where the rubber meets the road is in figuring out what's meant to be hot and what isn't, because there's two ways you can screw up. Uh, you can miss a fault, which is the obvious one. Um, but the other one, which will uh, be even more embarrassing is you can incorrectly identify something as a fault that's not. Um, you can recommend that your client complete some really expensive repairs. Uh, and then you can go back and reinspect it for them and the problem's still there because it was never a problem in the first place, but you didn't know that. And oh, yeah. communicating that uh, back to your client would be very, very embarrassing. Um, <clears throat> and it could be something, you know, ch changing out a, a circuit breaker for $40 plus labor, no worries. Um, but we've been involved and gone in after other companies in sites where they've recommended 10, 20, $100,000 worth of repairs that that were done and didn't need to be. Oh. Um, and your client will never, ever get over that. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or you'll have to pay for it yourself. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, particularly if you're a smaller operator, you can very quickly put, put yourself out of business. Um, so if there's one thing that your listeners take away from this, get certified, get trained, know what you're doing. Um, don't go in half cocked. It's not worth it. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, you cannot make enough money off a few jobs to, to justify that kind of risk to yourself and your reputation and your business. Yeah. Can, can people like, do you have to be certified? Can people go out and do it? Have you heard of people going out and doing thermographic testing without training? Oh yeah, I dare say the majority of people doing it are untrained and uncertified. The tide is sort of turning back the other way um, of late. So what we noticed for years and years, we do a lot of subcontracting for other electricians um, and we'd have them every now and then, someone in the office would get a bright idea um, to get rid of us and they'd just go and buy a camera and give it to one of the boys, send them out on site, go and do what infrared do. Um, and they'll do that for about 12 months and then they'll have some sort of problem and then they'd come back with their, their tail yeah. between their legs. And um, we have then had a few clients who've actually gone the proper route and got um, certified and stuff like that. And how much success they've had, I don't really know. Um, but that's definitely the way to do it. Because how it's usually driven is 90% of your clients are going to be coming to you for this, not because they want it. Um, you're an inconvenience to them, usually. Um, they're coming because the insurance company's told them they have to do it. Yep. So when the insurance company gets a report, um, the assessors are getting pretty switched on now. And often they'll ask to see the certification for the inspector. And we've had a bunch of clients come back to us and go, oh, my electrician really stitched me up. Um, the insurance company said we needed this inspection. I paid him to do it. And then when he asked, the insurer asked for their certification, they didn't have one. Um, so now I've got to get you guys to do it. And by the way, can you do it tomorrow? Because my policy is due the day after tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we try, but <laughs> we don't always succeed in getting there. Um, so that's really critical. What could be even worse is if the insurer doesn't pick it up on the spot, they just go, oh, great. Yep. Inspection report, fine, file it away. Um, and then there is a problem. The first thing they're going to look for when that claim comes through is that report. The second thing they're going to look for is the certification of the guy that did the report. Um, and I know from guys over East um, that do uh, that do insurance type work and workers um, like professional witnesses for insurance companies. Um, there've been cases where guys have had to get up in front of a tribunal because insurance company is disputing the claim. Um, and the magistrate goes, great, you did this report. What are your qualifications? And they go, I'm an electrician. And he goes, yeah, but what are your thermal imaging qualifications? And they go, none. And the magistrate goes, great, get out of here. Oh, shit. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so right. be real careful. <laughs> yeah. So anyone that's out there doing it, go and get training that if you want to keep doing it. Yes. Pretty much. <laughs> 100%. Cool. Good tips. Thanks for that. So uh, what's training cost? Um. Okay, so the courses run, uh, there's the company we use in Perth um, is SVT Engineering. Uh, they've just um, merged with Wood, uh, so they call themselves something different now. Um, but the course is about $2,500, if I recall correctly. Uh, and then your registration fees with AINDT are about five or 600 bucks, and that lasts for five years. After five years, um, you can just renew your certification. You don't need to do any retraining. After 10 years, you've got to reset the exam. Yeah, okay, cool. And that's about another five, 600 bucks. So it's not yep. massive, um, but it does take you out of your business for a week as well. Yeah. Obviously, you have to be a qualified electrician to do this? No, okay. you don't. All right. So what about moving, removing a scutcheon and having a look behind the panels? Oh. and? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I can't, I'm, we're in Western Australia, so I can't speak to the regulations over East, but I'm, I'm sure they're quite similar. Um, you've still got to have an electrician there to remove the panels. Um, so obviously being an electrician is super advantageous. Also, you already have an understanding of what all the components are and what they do. Um, but you can do a perfectly competent and accurate electrical thermographic survey without being an electrician. Um, some of the the better inspectors I know are not electricians, um, okay. but they've always got to have one working with them. Yeah, sure. Okay. That makes sense. Sweet. All right. Well, in terms of uh, getting your staff up and running, say if you've got a new person coming on board and they've done their level one training, uh, was it level one, level three? Yeah. Level yeah, one. Level one. Yep. And they've done their level one training and now you want to get them out there and, and understanding how to do a good job. So how would you go about, you know, getting the processes, right for them and helping them understand how to be efficient on the job when it comes to doing testing? Um, depends on the individual guy. 
So obviously everybody learns a bit differently. Um, but it's, I mean, it's the same as you train someone in any other um, sort of, uh, you know, work process. Um, you take them out with somebody that knows it well and you just repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and, and keep drilling it into them. Um, and a lot of the time it can be a little bit boring and um, repetitive. And that's why it's one of those things that it's probably not for everybody um, because you do need to stay focused all day. Um, and if you're in a nice air conditioned office building, that's easy. Um, if you're out, you know, at uh, some disgusting process plant with dust everywhere and sweat running into your eyes and up your nose and in the back of your throat, then it's a little bit different to, to keep focused and, and continue to care um, throughout the entire day. Um, but you just got to repeat it and expose them to a lot of different, uh, different fault conditions and find a lot of things that look like they, they should be fault conditions, but they actually aren't. They're just things that are, are operating as they're meant to be. Um, I just keep drilling it in and depending on the confidence level of the guy that can take anywhere between six and, and 18 months. Yeah. Cool. Probably the most disgusting place I've ever worked was Steggles chicken in a chicken processing lab. I have worked there. Oh my God. It's worst. bad. Um, worst for me was an abattoir down South in, uh, in Harvey. That yeah. was much, much worse. Cause they waste no part of the cow. Like they, they render the bones and the fat and everything. It was so gross, but I've oh. been to Steggles and that is, that is pretty bad. <laughs> it was shit. I didn't want to work there again. No. Um, so cool. So what is like, so it takes that little bit, maybe if we can just run through some things that, um, common problems that you face and just a basic run through of these are the steps you need to take to get the job done. Okay, sure. Um, so I guess it, the typical day going out and doing it, um, you'd roll up on site, um, do a bit of a pre-start meeting, do your, your swims, your JSA, have a meeting with the FM. Um, you start working through the switchboards. Now, if it's a site that you know well, you're going to want to have a list of the of the boards and where they all are so that you can navigate around, tick them off as you go, make sure you don't miss anything. Um, if you don't know the site well or you're going there for the first time, then it can be a little tricky. So what we'll usually do is we start at the main switchboard um, because that's where your, all your feeds come from. Don't inspect the main switchboard first though because you want everything operating under load and you want it to have been under load for a little while. So if you show up at seven o'clock in the morning as production is just starting up and you're at a 3200 amp main switchboard, nothing's gonna be as hot as it's gonna be at three or four o'clock in the afternoon when the plant's been running flat chat all day. Yeah. So that sort of takes you to the, you know, the top of the tree or the bottom of your single line drawing, however you wanna look at it. And then you start branching out from there. So you wanna do your lighter loads first um, because they take less time to heat up and then you want to work back towards your bigger switchboards and start knocking them off. And then you want to finish off at your bigger loads at the end of the job or the end of the day. Um, and as you're going, you're just building a list of what all the boards are, where they're located. You want to keep in the back of your mind as you're doing that too, that you might not be the guy that comes back next time. So you want to provide enough information for the next guy who's coming through. Um, and you also want to be keeping an eye out as you're inspecting the switchboards for um, issues that might not be thermal faults, um, but your client might still want to know about them. You know, there might be a main switch handle missing or there's some fireproofing missing, or as everybody loves to do, they've just hacked a big hole in the gland plate and stuffed the cables through it instead of glanding them. Yeah. We've all done it. Um, <laughs> not anymore. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, but so you roll up at the switchboard. We always do it with two blokes um, for health and safety reasons and also because it's just way, way quicker and it's much less depressing too. Um, you have a good look at the switchboard. Um, you document it on your list. You take the covers off. You inspect it. You see what's going on. Um, you, if you find any issues, um, Firstly, you want to record them. Secondly, you also want to grab load readings on them because that's going to be your biggest indicator as to whether or not um, there's actually a problem there. People, I get asked all the time, like what's the hottest something should be or what's an acceptable baseline temperature. 
Um, the reality is that there isn't one. When you're doing thermography, there's two kinds of inspections. They're called qualitative or quantitative inspections. So qualitative is about making comparisons between two things. And quantitative is about recording uh, temperatures above some arbitrary baseline. In electrical, it's almost always qualitative because you've got varying dynamic load conditions and you've got different size conductors and conductors that are rated for different temperatures. Um, you're never going to be able to know off the top of your head exactly what that, you know, 90 mil XLPE cable um, in with three parallel cores uh, with 50% uh, load on it what temperature that should be. So you're looking for other components within the switchboard that are at the same load conditions uh, or very similar and what they are. And you're looking for temperature rises against those other qualitative criteria. Yeah, because the heat of the day and stuff has a big influence on it as well? Can do, yeah. Ambient's actually probably the like the least important thing because the camera will automatically adjust for that. So sure. it will show you the contrast between the objects um, but absolutely if it's 45 degrees in the substation or if it's five degrees in the substation then that's going to have a bearing as well so you you definitely need to be aware of that as you're working through yeah okay what are some of the other factors that will cause the temperature um, fluctuations or differences um, so load will um, harmonics to a lesser degree um, the harmonics is one of those, I like to say like it's never harmonics until the one time that it is harmonics. Um, but like be very careful blaming that because you're almost always going to look like an idiot. Um, that's your last resort. Um, the size of the conductors, bigger conductors will take less current um, with more heat. Uh, so bigger conductors will take more current with less heat, sorry. Um, you need to be aware of, of what's called emissivity. Um, and that's very important to understand. And that's something that gets covered in the courses. Um, but broadly speaking, um, bright, shiny surfaces like copper or aluminium bus bar, for example, they'll tend to just reflect heat back at you um, when you look at them in the infrared camera. So they'll look much colder than what they are. Um, so you need to look for what we call um, wedge points um, between the bars where they join. That's where you'll get a true reading on the temperature. Um, or if someone's gone in ahead of you and painted them with enamel um, for the phase markings or taped them, then that's where, you, where you're going to get your true readings. Yeah, okay, cool. Um, and then, as you've already said, ambient temperature will have an effect. Um, airflow through the switchboard will have an effect. So if it's got cooling fans on the boards, then that's going to suck more heat out of it. Um, but as a general rule, you're really just looking for comparisons between things. You're not looking to go, oh, that that's just too hot. Um, there are times when that's the case. Like if a cable's at 170 degrees, well, that's never a good thing. Um, but if you've got cable hovering around sort of 50, 60 degrees, um, that's where you really need a point of comparison because, uh, yeah, it could be overheating or it could be perfectly fine. Um, yeah. yeah. Cool. So have you got an example of when it was harmonics? Um, I've got one, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a thermal imaging fault. Um, we had air conditioning controllers blowing up um, in a... Um, in a facility just down the road from where our office is actually. Um, and they'd asked us to go in and do infrared and we couldn't find anything. Um, and we didn't think that was a problem in the first place. Um, so we put a data logger on overnight and then we found that when all the other load was turned off and only the air cons in the server rooms were running, um, the THD jumped up to like 120%, which was enough to, to blow the AC controllers. But I can't think of a case off the top of my head where we found a fault and it was it was purely harmonics what what causes a harmonic fault um so it's usually switch mode power supplies uh that's the most common thing is um is vsds and ups's are your number one but basically anything that instead of doing a linear transformation of voltage so taking it into a big iron core and stepping it down anything that chops up the voltage um, in order to reduce it 
is going to give you harmonics um, and it's a much bigger problem now than what it used to be um, because instead of having iron core ballast in everything these days we've got leds mm. or we've got electronic ballast in fluoros and they're all switch mode power supplies yeah right does that transfer through like cables run in parallel for emf as well uh it can do so it can give you issues with um uh what is it hli um communications and yeah if you've got them anywhere near comms cables um harmonics can be a big problem um vsds is the number one and because that'll mess with mess with the comms on your hvac side um so all your bms like communications cabling yeah and um if you talk to any mechanical guy um they'll tell you how important it is to gland VSDs and motors correctly, um, which a lot of people don't understand. You've got to put EMF glands on them to reduce the harmonics so you don't get those problems throughout the rest of the installation. That's with the um, shielded cable, is that right? Correct, yeah. yeah. Cool, awesome. Um, what's the worst problem that you've seen? Like, oh shit, we're going to turn everything off for... Oh, I, knew, like I knew you were going to ask me that. And... Uh, <laughs> Honestly, we see them every week. Uh, we see something, we're like, oh my God, that's bad. But um, the one that stuck with me for years is a shopping center in Perth. I won't name and shame it because we still work there. Um, but we'd been doing the inspections, but not the maintenance or repairs there for a very long time. And every year we went in and we found these faults on the main, main ACBs. There was two 1600 amp incomers into the site main switchboard. And every year it was getting worse and worse and worse. And we'd go back to him and say, guys, you really, really have to do something about this. Um, and then uh, it was January. I remember it was a stinking hot day. I'm walking down St. George's Terrace and the, uh, the center manager calls me and goes, oh man, I really need you to get out here and do an emergency bike inspection on these main switches. And I said, why? And he goes, oh, there's smoke coming out of the main switchboard. I said, man, you are way beyond my ability to help you with an infrared camera. Um, you need to turn that off right now. Um, and they didn't get us out. They got another contractor out. It was a big mob. I think it was Nielsen. Um, and Nielsen come out, looked at it and told me the exact same thing. You need to shut this down right now. Uh, and it was Thursday at about 6 p.m. And they wouldn't do it because they wanted to go through the night. Yeah. yeah. An hour later, uh, the whole switchboard blew up. Oh, no they um and they were without power for about two weeks i think they wound up getting temporary generators in there but because yeah. of this the way the center was laid out they couldn't power up the whole center um so they were closed for a couple of weeks the major supermarket lost all their stock um there's a bunch of butchers and stuff in there lost all of their stock i think it was five or six million dollars worth of damage in the end oh my god was there fire was there fire or just oh, yeah. it just shut off and, and you know short circuited everything. Uh the whole switchboard just went like there was nothing Bang. left of it. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. So yeah, gotta gotta really push that, eh, with the customers, but they're obviously do, at the end of the day they're gonna Yeah, do the repairs for your own peace of mind. Follow your customers up on the repairs because of course the first thing they look for after that is like who are they gonna blame? And they came back and tried to blame us. Uh, and we went, look, man, here's seven years of us telling you that this was here and seven years of us telling you to fix it and seven years of you not doing it. Wow. Uh, yeah. It filters so, all the way down to the smallest job. Hey, you just got to make sure that we're covering ourselves, logging everything, reporting, putting in the, you know, the certification that we need to cover ourselves. Oh, absolutely. CYA, man. Like that's... <laughs> that's all you can do and you got to remember too so that was a it was a big it was a big site and it was a big customer and obviously it was a big inconvenience but even for your smallest customer um it's still super critical to them the reliability of their installation and they're still going to be super pissed if something happens that compromises it um so treat your smallest customer the same way you treat your biggest customer yeah cool good one Sweet. So when it comes to reporting on good segue here to reporting and making sure that we're logging everything correctly. Um, and you were saying earlier that you use a third party software. How do you go around uh, making sure that everything's reported, logged, put into the correct job card or reporting system and making sure that your, your, your things are lined up ducks in a row. 
Yeah, so we talked about that a little a little bit um, before. Um, obviously, the, the critical thing to go out on site with is an equipment list. Um, and then you want some sort of a fault sheet. So something you can use to document the issues that you're finding. Um, and there are certain minimum um, sort of uh, minimum detail that needs to be included in the report in order to meet the Australian standard. Um, I, it's a bullet point list of about 20 items and I can't tell you all of them off the top of my head. Um, but if you're interested in doing this, the very first thing you should be doing is going and buying the Australian standard and having a read of it anyway. Um, but as you find issues, you need to document, uh, obviously where you are, what switchboard they are, what the component is. You need to document the load readings. You need some idea of what the ambient temperature is. Um, and then you take that information back, um, and you analyze it on the computer. Um, everybody's got their own sort of different report format. Um, people aren't usually super keen on sharing those because it's their own IP. Yep. Um, when you buy a, a Fluke or a Fleur or a Testo camera or whatever, the software they give you does come with some some default report format templates set up. Um, I'm not sure about like Fleur and Testo. I know that the Fluke ones don't actually meet the Australian standard. Like you've got to throw some extra detail in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so be very wary of that. Um, the report, just generally speaking, it also needs to include, uh, you know, the site, the site contact, the site address, um, the inspector, the inspector's certification. We like to include a lot of information about the inspection methodology. So what we're doing, how we're doing it, what the limitations of the inspection are. Um, so if there's panels that are interlocked and stuff like that, and you can't remove those covers to get a look at them, you need to document that in your report so that, and this has happened to us before, um, you know, like the old school combined fuse switch units that, that interlock mechanically, you can't open the covers. You can't take them off. Yeah. Yeah. We've had those, um, those burn up before and the clients come back and gone, you know, what the, why wasn't that in the report? We've gone, look, man, it was, but we couldn't open those covers because, you can't open them online and you didn't want us to shut your plant down in the middle of uh, production. So thermal imaging is great, but it's not magic. There are certain things you're not going to be able to look at. Um, and again, CYA, make sure you document those. Yeah. Um, and make sure you're documenting anything else uh, that, that looks really out of the ordinary. You'll find you know, breakers that are oversized for the cables that are attached to them, like little things like that. Um, and you definitely don't want to be in a position where your client is um, coming back to you later on and going, hey, I know it's not a thermal issue, but we found this issue in our switchboard and you guys have been inspecting it for us for the last three years. You're an electrician. How come you didn't notice and say anything? Um, yeah. So be careful of that. More detail is much, much better than less detail. Um, And you need to include uh, normal visual photos of the issues that you're finding as you find them. Um, So that the guys going back to do the repairs or it might be yourself going back to do the repairs uh, actually has a visual reference. So you can see, oh yeah, that's the right component. Because we've had that before. Um, Other contractors have gone back to do repairs for issues that we've located and they've repaired the wrong thing. Oh, right, yep. Um, So, be very wary of that. Uh, also, by and large, the the visible light, the regular camera that's built into your infrared camera is almost always going to be dog shit. Um, this $15,000 camera, they put a $20 digital camera in it for some reason. I don't understand why. Um, so we, back in the day, used to carry digital cameras around with us. Now, of course, you just use your phone. Um, but... Uh, don't rely on the camera built into your infrared camera, particularly if it's quite dark, which it usually is in a switch room or a substation. The image that you get out of it is going to be really crap. Um, doesn't look very professional on your report and it doesn't make it very easy for you if you've got to go back and actually try and find that component and, and do the repair. Yeah, good point. Cool. Sweet. And um, so when you've got your, fl- say, let's just fluke meter, and you plug it into your computer or does it send it via Bluetooth or how do you get the, the actual photos? Uh, so the Fluke one, you've got a variety of options. They've got Fluke Connect, which is a like Bluetooth for sending it back to your computer. Don't use it at shit. It doesn't work. Um, 
apparently they're working on that. That's been the case for years. Okay. Uh, you just plug it in with a USB cable. Um, otherwise, ours are a micro SD card. Um, and you just plug it in and get the photos off it, like you would with any other digital camera or your phone. So do you use, um, are you able to upload that direct to something like Simpro or do you put it into a G drive or how do you, how do you get your staff to get that information to the person doing the report and sending out the quote and the repair report? Yeah. So we don't put them in Simpro. I hate Simpro so much. Um, we, uh, yeah, we use, um, G Suite Enterprise. So whatever your preferred cloud storage solution is, um, chuck them on there. Definitely wouldn't recommend just leaving them on your hard drive or leaving them on the computer in the office. It's real easy to accidentally delete a week's work if you're not being careful. So yeah. again, cloud storage people use it. It's free yeah. for, for small amounts yeah. and it'll save your life. All right. So let's run through um, Australian standards and some OH&S stuff just to close it up, man. Okay, cool. Um, so relevant Australian standards are AS18434 and AS18436. Uh, and I always mix up which one's which, but basically one of them covers um, the certification and qualification of personnel. Um, and one of them uh, covers inspection methodology and what you should put in your report and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and they're not particularly long documents. Uh, I think they're only about 30 or 40 pages each, um, which you know, compared to AS3000 is not much at all. Um, relatively simple to interpret as well, but definitely get a copy, make sure you're working to them, make sure you're including all of the relevant detail in your reports um, and make sure that you're, you're certified to the Australian standard. Yeah. So when it comes back to reporting, you said before, so grab the AS, uh, Australian standard or your standard, go through, list out all the things that you need to check put that into your report is that yeah fair to say? yeah yeah so you want to like if you're doing a lot of it um you're going to set yourself up a template you're not going to be reinventing the wheel every time you do a report um so on your first run through your your template you definitely want to make yourself a little checklist and go through and go yep i've, I've included that i've included that i've included that i've included that um and then listen to your customers as well like have a discussion with them, you know, how did you find the report? Um, what could be improved? Was the information presented in a way that was easy for you to interpret? And it's a constantly improving document. I've been doing this for 15 years and I'm still tweaking our reports every week or two. Yeah. Um, every time I see an improvement or a typo I never noticed or, or something like that. Yeah. And as soon as a you know staff member makes a mistake, that's a process, isn't it? We're able to go, oh, well, yeah, I can see how you've missed that. You can talk to your staff member. I didn't realise that. Add a couple of lines to it, makes it clear. Then they don't make that mistake moving on. Exactly right. Every couple of months, we get all the guys that are doing infrared in a room together and just you know uh, yell at each other for a bit and go, this is working, this isn't. How can we improve this? Um, and sometimes you do improve it, sometimes you make it worse, but at least you're trying um, and constantly evolving. Yeah, cool. Sweet. So some OS and H uh, things that we should be looking out for, making sure that we're keeping ourselves safe on site, not making uh, silly mistakes that are going to potentially injure people. Yeah. So disclaimer, not an OH&S expert um, and what we do is works in Western Australia. I don't know what the regulations are over East. I think Queensland's pretty similar to WA, but I'm yeah, not, not an authority on that at all. Um, but in WA, we've got uh, safe work practices for, no, uh, oh, I can't remember what energy safety call it now on the spot. But anyway, uh, there's an energy safety code of practice um, that, uh, for work on or near energized um, electrical installations. That's what it's called, which uh, prior to 2018 was just guidelines, but is now rules and you must follow them. Um, so every situation is going to be different and it really depends what the fault current is at the switchboard, how badly it's going to hurt you. But we have a couple of baseline things that we do on every job. Um, and then we have a couple of things that uh, are job and even, you know, area within that job specific. So the number, the number one thing that we do is we always have a safety observer present. So there's always two guys um, and they're always both trained in CPR and low voltage rescue. So if there is an issue, uh, one guy can help the other guy out. 
Um, also make sure that you're not both pulling the panels off the switchboard at the same time. Um, the second thing you need to do is have a good knowledge of what's actually in the switchboard. So it might be a pretty high current switchboard, but it might be a site that you've been to a couple of times before. You know that it's a Form 3B switchboard, so everything is physically separated and encapsulated within the board. You literally have to take the panel off and stab it in sideways to... Um, you know, to generate an arc flash. Yeah. But if it's an older, nasty looking site, you haven't been there before, the switchboard's 30, 40 years old, you need to be a hell of a lot more careful. Um, maybe you need to throw some arc flash gear on as well, um, just for your own peace of mind and safety. Um, so all of our guys have got heavy arc flash gear with them. Um, we do try and use that judiciously. Um, we don't use it on every single switchboard we inspect. Um, to my way of thinking, and this is actually backed up by the manufacturers as well, um, that gear is not designed to be worn for eight or nine hours all day. Um, you need to be aware of other risk factors. There is obviously a risk to the guy who is performing the inspection first and foremost. Um, but if you cause an outage or significant damage to the switchboard because you've caused a flash, um, there's also damage to the installation. There's damage to continuity of business for yourself and for your client. There's damage to your reputation. Um, and in some cases, arc flash gear reduces the risk to the individual standing at the switchboard. And well, sorry, it reduces the consequences, not the, the likelihood. Um, but it massively increases the likelihood that he's going to cause a problem because he's tired, he's hungry, he can't breathe, yeah. uh, the mask is fogging up, um, the gloves are thick, so you can't hold a screwdriver properly. Yeah. Um, after doing that for eight hours, you are, you are just not your best self. Um, and if you look like Salisbury, who are probably the, you know, the big name in Art Flash Gear, um, they've got videos on YouTube saying, we do not recommend you wear this gear all day, every day. So know when it's appropriate to use it and absolutely have it available to you. Um, but do not use it on every switchboard. Um, if you're working on a little, you know, 63 amp load center, uh, you're not being safe. You've been an idiot. <laughs> It'd be a pretty funny photo though. It would. I've, yeah. They're online. <laughs> People have got them on their websites. It's like, all you're doing is showcasing that you've got no idea what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Awesome. Um, so yeah, that's it. the number one thing. Um, safety observer, barricade the area off. You definitely don't want, you know, the, uh, the tenant or the clients, um, unqualified personnel walking between you and the live switchboard. And you definitely don't want the health and safety rep showing up while that's happening. Um, and yeah, be aware of the risk. Um, be aware of what the code of practice is in your state and, and follow it. Yeah, cool. So with the safety observer, do you guys have an apprentice for that role or do you send two tradesmen out? How do you make that efficient in terms of still uh, making money? Uh, we will usually send two tradesmen out. Yep. Um, just just, it. It's, Build yeah, and, and charge accordingly. Exactly right. Um, we, I'm sure you could get away with doing it with an apprentice. I just... We've never had a, a significant safety incident in when doing this. And we've, I dare say, inspected literally millions of switchboards over the last 20, 30 years. Um, but I would not like to have to get up in court and say, oh, you know, my apprentice was the, the safety observer. And they go, well, why? He's not a qualified tradesman. I go, well, because it was cheaper. Yeah. Um, that's not a great look. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, charge accordingly. I'd love to hear your... Um your thoughts around competitive companies coming in and undercutting doing things like that? Like how, how do you talk to your customers through charging more? Cause you know, here at the Academy, you're always talking about go for quality and communicate with your client and get them to understand that you want better quality, not, not the cheapest product. So um, I'd love to hear your thoughts around how you talk to your clients about that and educate them. It's an uphill battle. Um, like the rest of the industry, uh, we've been waiting for a while for thermography to sort of go the same way as testing and tagging, um, which, you know, for a, for a brief period there was like printing money. Um, and then everybody started doing it. And now as a, as a contractor, you just can't even compete, um, on that, but it's, it's really the same things that you've got to do with, with all your other electrical work. Um, you've got to 
drill them on the fact that you are certified um, and that that's expensive. Drill them on the fact that you are using quality equipment and that that's expensive. Drill them on the fact that you're providing detailed quality reports and all of that takes time and costs money. Um, drill them on the fact that you're appropriately insured um, and definitely get your head around whatever the regulations are in your state and make sure that you clearly communicate to your client that you are working to those regulations um, and that perhaps the guy who's doing it at half the cost of what you are can't possibly be. Yeah. And how that affects them when they make that mistake or they have that incident or they haven't picked up a fault properly, like that example they had with the shopping center. Um, but if someone, you know, you, you reported on that, you told them about that problem, but if they were using someone cheap and they just went in, you know, ticked a box and, and then that happened, what impact that would have on them, you know? Yeah. And it, it does happen. So just get out there and start talking to people. Cause what you really need is you need a couple of good stories to tell. Um, and you know, after 10, 15 years in the industry, you'll collect those yourself. But if you've only been around for a couple of years, maybe you don't have them. So talk to some other guys, tell their stories. Um, but make people understand from real world examples, what the risks are. Um, when they're trying to save money. And then also you need to understand that you're not going to win every battle. Um, some people are just ignorant. Some people don't want to know. Some people are really set in their ways or I've worked with my Sparky for 30 years and he'd never do wrong by me. And it's like, well, sometimes they don't even know. Like a lot of people aren't aware of these standards and these requirements, um, particularly some of the like not, being ageist, but some of the older fellas that have been in the industry for a long time, a little bit set in their ways, um, they don't want to know about it. So they, they might not even know that they're not doing it properly. Yeah. No, good point. But yeah, stick to your guns. You can't discount your way to a profit. I'm sure you tell all of yeah. your, uh, <laughs> all of your members. That. One of my biggest messages is don't discount. <laughs> yeah. So wait, Awesome, man. Well, I really appreciate your time today. This has been awesome. You've covered so much and, and I'm sure all of the guys that are going to listen to this will be extremely grateful. So thank you for your time. Yeah, no dramas. Cool. Thanks, mate. Have a good Cheers. one. Hey, it's Greg Allen from the Electrician Success Academy. Did you know that the Academy Mastermind has its own private podcast? It makes it super easy for you to consume the video content with single sign-on linkage to the videos if you need to go and watch the video in our training platform. It has been one of the biggest changes that we've made in the Academy Mastermind and has helped propel electrical businesses forward from all over the world. doesn't matter where you are, these principles are universal and can help you do better in business. If you want a free 30-minute business strategy session, head over to the link in the show notes and book in your free strategy session today with one of our success managers. We look forward to seeing you there.